And uh, we're hoping to do this as a family, not just me reading it. So if you join me with these questions and answers, and hopefully if you have children that are part of the Sunday school program, that you are looking at these through the week with them and uh, talking to them about it to help support what they're being taught in their class. But question 15, let's read it together. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. Amen. Children, you're dismissed, and go ahead and have a seat. Well, as I mentioned, we are going to do a little bit different. It won't be a sermon, but I do have a passage I would like to read together with us. And then I have two short videos from the uh, Bible Project that are on their overview of Exodus. And as we are getting ready to go into Exodus, I thought some of the information that they uh, give out will help us as we're going through the text. The other thing I, I thought about this morning as I was looking at the, um, the different Bible reading plans we have, most of them, with of course the exception of the New Testament uh, reading through the Bible, most of them start with Genesis and will read either straight through the various books or sometimes uh, like the, the study, the, the, one, the reading I'm doing is actually doing it more in a chronological order, um, which is kind of neat. But... Um, you would be in Genesis right now, probably getting pretty close to the end of it, getting ready to go into Exodus. So if you were doing these readings, it would help you as we are kind of building to the first sermon in Exodus and uh, getting a little better idea what is going on. Um, so again, we encourage you to, to do that. The uh, Bible Project is a ministry that we introduced you to if not last year, I think it was the year before. I think it was the year before we did uh, a reading through the Bible and a series of sermons that kind of correlated with that through the Bible and used the schedule from uh, the Bible Project. And we encouraged you to use them as you do your studies uh, in daily reading during the day. They're very helpful. There's a lot of um, material available to you, it's, uh, of course, all online, so you'd have to have access to the computer, but um, but they have a lot of different videos. Most of them are about five or six minutes long. They're not very long, but there's a, a wealth of information that they will put out. And for instance, for the book of Exodus, they don't only have um, um, the overview and kind of a, a introduction to the Exodus, but they'll go through different texts in Exodus and pull out topics and they'll do videos and deal with particular topics um, that you will be reading about in Exodus. So a lot of information. We do encourage you to take a look at them and use it as, as maybe a quick resource to be able to enhance your reading day to day as you're going through the Bible and as you're going through your daily reading. Um, we did print out some copies of their chart. It's 
don't be uh, uh, don't dismiss it because it kind of looks like a cartoon, but is it really a cartoon? It's just drawn characters. But there's copies out on the um, foyer shelf, and uh, it just goes through the various sections of the Bible and kind of brings out key points and themes that might be helpful for you. So feel free to help yourself to to that if you want. And there are videos that will go through it. But um, before we actually get into the videos, I thought I would look at Hebrews chapter 11 again. And um, one of the reasons is because it is a text in the New Testament that points out a lot of the key characters that we read about in Genesis, Exodus, and then on through the Old Testament. But there are a lot of people mentioned that are from Genesis and Exodus, and I thought it would be nice to to get a uh, perspective through the New Testament's lenses, looking back and seeing what it has to say about some of these people. So I'm going to be starting with verse 1 of Hebrews 11 and reading through this. If you just follow with me, I think Ted's going to put it up on the screen for us. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Starting with Genesis 1. So so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice through Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. You want to know how you can please God? And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. You have to have faith to be able to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. But this, by this he was condemned. But by this he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed, and he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. This is the first sermon that Bob did in in Genesis, kind of building up for this was on Abraham. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, 
and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the, act of offer, in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings of Jacob, on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And this is kind of building to the end of Genesis and in, in Joseph's life, um, I'm sorry, in Jacob's life, he is on his deathbed and he's already telling Joseph and his people to come after him that when he dies in Egypt, he wants his bones to be brought back. He knows, doesn't know the details of the Exodus, but he knows that someday he wants to have his, his bones brought back to the Holy Land. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and that they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And I thought that, that sentence was very interesting to be put there, that there's, he's saying that Moses was more concerned about someone in the future that hadn't even come, won't come for thousands of years after his life. But he's more concerned about the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven years. By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the, slave, to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah 
and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of the weaknesses, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to be to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the, with sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, through, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made, they should not be made perfect. And then I, I did mention this for Ted, but I'm going to read the first section of chapter 12 because it ties into there. Therefore, all these things that we've just read, all the things that are in the Old Testament that was kind of highlighted very quickly in this chapter. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So as we go through Genesis, as we go through Exodus, as we go through the various books of the Old Testament, there is a reason for us to know it as New Testament Christians, New Testament followers of Christ. Because the, such as in Exodus, one of the main themes of it is redemption. How God redeemed a people that he chose from their sins and set them into the course of, of history, world history, saving them and setting them aside. And from that we can see how God will also deal with us as his children. We see how he acts with the people in the Old Testament. That's how he acts with us. And it is always far greater than we deserve. So I thought we would watch a couple short videos or five or six minutes long. The first one is on, uh, I think, chapter 1 through 18 of Exodus, and the other was 19 through 40, I believe. So, um, Ted, go ahead and just run through those, and then we'll uh, see if there's anything. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together and it all takes place at the foot of famous mountain. 
Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. And Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely, in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing the enslaved people and defeating gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the tenth plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house is pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now if you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates the key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly, as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrous evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. 
And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great, but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to look at the design and method of each individual book and how it fits into the overall storyline of the whole Bible. We also make videos that take one theme and trace it through the entire storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. Hey, we want you to meet some of the artists who are working on these videos. We're a nonprofit and we'd love your help. We're always making a new video. You could go to join the Bible. The first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence, they had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. It's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. The word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. That it includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And, and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in a tent, 
you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up, because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me, and... Don't worship idol statues. Right. And so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not going to work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something? Yeah, it does seem odd. But this dialogue is inviting us to God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions. And he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off a mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will he ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. Hey, this is John. And this is Tim. So there's a lot of material, a lot of stories, a lot of people that we are introduced to in the book of Exodus. But again, I'm hearing a <laughs> volume back here. Hang on just a second. that there's something in the future that New Testament uh, people can see and experience that the Old Testament people can only slightly experience in some ways. One thing that I, I, I always find kind of interesting with reading almost any of the texts that you, you read in the Old and New Testament that always, you know, I scratch my head. You, you kind of see some of the, the examples that they brought up with how God in very vivid, personal, 
dramatic, a lot of time, ways, talks and comes to and presents himself to the people of Israel and in the New Testament to the to the Jewish people that he was around in his lifetime. And how so many times the reaction of the people to what they're seeing. I mean, how can how can you not see a burning bush or march through the Red Sea on dry land and watch God bring it all back down and destroy the armies of one of the mightiest nations on the world to save you? How could you not just completely devote yourself to God and follow him every day and, 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 and be in total obedience to him? But we do the same thing. God does things in our lives all the time. He reveals himself to us all the time. And we do the same things that they do. So the, how we do it is the same way that they do it. Same way the Israelites sin when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And he knows, they know that God is up there, but instead they want Aaron to build a, an idol and worship him. And there were just many of them were killed for it. We do the same types of things. So these stories that we read in some ways can point to our own lives and our own stories, how God interacts with us. So I hope as we continue in this series and as we spend this next year in the book of Exodus, that you won't see it just as pages of people from thousands of years ago that nice stories, but it has no meaning to you other than what's written but start looking at the pages and, and, and looking at what God and how he interacts with his people and how he's interacting with us today and you today. The words that they brought up, redemption and salvation, those are very important things for us too. We need the same redemption and salvation that the Israelites needed. And through Jesus Christ, we have it. And that's one thing that we celebrate with communion every week here is the salvation that Jesus gives us through what he did. And I think uh, right at the right at, uh, beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews that I read, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what we see when we take communion together. We're able to look back at what he did. We're able to look forward to what he will be doing in the future in our time with him and what he's doing for us now as we live this life for as long as he grants us to live here on earth and how he is interacting in us and inter, um, teaching us, changing us, molding us. And it's, it's a wonderful thing, and it's a wonderful picture that Jesus gave us. This is you know, kind of what you see a lot of in the book of Exodus, things that are symbolic in the temple, things that are symbolic that are going on around the Israelite people and what it means in the, in the plan of redemption and salvation. And that's what the bread and the cup 
does for us. It's symbolic. It's pictures of the blood that God, that Jesus shed for us and of his body that was broken for us. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And in verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So let's celebrate together. We'll sing a song. Come up and do as we do from week to week. Pick your, pick up your cup and uh, we'll celebrate together once everyone is served. Go ahead, Ted. And it probably made it easier to...
Yeah. 